Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. I'm reading from Exodus 11 and 12 up to verse 32. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle." There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all you people who follow you. After that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people go of Israel, go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, 
and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Thanks, Dora. I'm very thankful for readers. It's very good. Uh, I heard a story the last couple weeks about two twin boys, twin boys, not two sets of twin, twin boys. And uh, these twin boys, their father 
was an alcoholic. And as the brothers grew up, they, uh, they, they made very different choices. One brother himself became an alcoholic and was being counseled and later on, uh, later in life, and was asked, why, why? And his reasons for it were, because my dad was an alcoholic. That's why I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> the other brother, who grew up in the same home, was asked the same question because he never drank. He never touched it. He was sober. He was clean. He, like, never. And they said, how come you never drank? And he said, because my dad was an alcoholic. Two different choices out of the same environment. Two different paths were taken. What makes a good story? There must be an origin to a story, beginning point, characters, most likely a crisis for the characters. There's usually an escalation of that crisis or problem. Uh, there's a choice is required and action is needed. And finally, a discovery that changes the life and attitude and the heart of a character. I remember, I don't know if you've seen the new Jason Bourne movie. I won't tell you the ending. But there's a, a line that just stuck out at me because I was preparing for this. And he, it's the one character says to Jason, Jason, you have a choice. And there was a moment in that time where he had a choice. I won't tell you what it is because you might want to go see the movie. Um, but anyways, I just stuck out. We all have a choice. In our culture, I've heard it that art imitates life. And I've also heard, I've had conversations with people where I think life actually imitates art. Uh, our actions, our daily choices can be influenced by what we find ourselves exposed to and what we choose to expose ourselves to. What we um, get comfortable seeing or hearing or even participating in. Our expectations in certain situations are really sometimes based on false understandings of what God is doing in our lives during the good, the bad, and the ugly times. In Exodus, we find that the people of Israel had been exposed to many things over the years. They had great provision. There was a change of leadership. Uh, there was a different culture. There was increasing forced labor and oppression uh, to the point that they were finally crying out to God for help. This was their crisis point. More often than not, it is the crisis in our stories, our personal stories, that instigates change in our characters. And usually, somewhere along the way, a person needs to make a choice. Look at your own life. When you have found your best moments of character development, what, what did that look like? When life was easy or during a difficult season? Looking back, would you have changed had not the circumstances been difficult? Did change happen when you ignored your pain, your poor choices, a lack of discipline, when you allowed apathy or the lack of feeling, interest, enthusiasm, or concern to run your life? Does change happen when you allow your independence and self-reliance to rule, as it has you chasing in circles with no sign of rest or relief in sight? What kind of habits would you say you are a slave to? Or did change happen when you leaned into your pain, even when it was hard, when you let go of your need for control, 
when you release those deep, dark secrets of your life that you said you would take to the grave? Did your perspective change when you released your troubles to God? Did change happen in your life when you took a step of faith, allowing God into your life to stretch you, to mold you, uh, and change your thinking and your heart? Did you find change by allowing God to heal those places that enslave you, freedom through Jesus? I remember a number of times in my life where I experienced, my life was pretty good, actually, growing up. I had great provision. I was, my life has, all, has been really good, always. I was always very comfortable. But I also remember times of, very specific times, of great tragedy and disappointment. Times where I was confused, I was angry, sad by, and sad by the circumstances I found myself in. The most significant were uh, key points were when my grandparents passed away. I was a school age. I don't really remember them. My best friend committed suicide when I was in grade 10. That threw me off. My father died suddenly when I was 23. My brother died of cancer when I was 40, and we did palliative care with him for the summer. I have a number of friends who, who have thrown away their marriages, and some family and friends who have had some horrific things happen in their lives, and we've walked together. And I've personally experienced challenging health issues in my life. I was reminded again recently how short life is, and I don't care how old somebody is, life is always too short when they pass away. And while I was on vacation, five men um, all passed away. I had five different calls. Um, all having had some influence at different stages in my life. It has, been a it has been the crisis events that instigate change in my life and character. And as I processed what was happening around me, I came to the conclusion, especially when I was younger, I needed to make some different choices for my life and my future. In the text that was read today, for us today, we come to the pinnacle of Israel's freedom story. But this is more than a narrative about Moses, the Egyptians, and the Israelites. This is our story and my story. It is a narrative that is the beginning of the ultimate story found in the gospel story. In the previous weeks and in our passage today, we see a clear example of sin and defiance towards God. But we can also see the redemption that is available. And we can see a clear example of how we can move from slavery to freedom. First, I'm going to take some time. I want to look at their choice. So let's do a quick recap of Israel's story. At the beginning of Exodus, we find that Joseph had died and the Israelites were in Egypt. And it says, chapter 1, verse 7, they had multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. A new pharaoh came on the scene. He worried about the Israelites' numbers and prosperity, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Moses was born, and around that time, the pharaoh ordered that every son born to the Hebrews be cast into the Nile and killed. Moses grew up through that, lived well, witnessed the abuse of slavery, the injustice towards the Israelites. He started to notice these things. He committed murder, hid his indiscretions, and then fled in fear to start a new life, putting behind him what he had done. How many of us have done that? Not murder, but hidden our, or ignored our indiscretions, never dealing with that issue specifically. We just move on to something else, thinking everything will be better because 
uh, we try to forget it. Let me tell you, it sits beneath the surface. It is not gone. And if you're running away from that issue, it needs to be dealt with. Eventually, the king of Egypt that Moses fled from died. So time has passed. And the Israelites continue to groan to God in their slavery. And God heard Israel's prayers for help. God calls Moses back to Egypt and promises deliverance, the deliverance of Israel. After a lot of excuses, which we've heard about already, Moses and Aaron stand before Pharaoh and tell him to let the people of Israel go. In chapter 7, we then begin, we began to read about the first of ten plagues. And God promised to show his power and wonders through Moses as confirmation of Moses' authority to stand before Pharaoh. And this confirmation was to serve uh, two purposes, at least two purposes. Number one was to show the Israelites that God, the God of their fathers, was alive and worthy of their worship. And number two uh, was to show the Egyptians that their gods were nothing. Israel had been enslaved for 400 years, and in that time had lost faith in the God of their fathers. They believed he existed and worshipped him, but they doubted that he could or would break the yoke of their bondage. I would imagine he had gotten, they had gotten comfortable with the environment that they lived in, and even started to see Egypt's gods as plausible. In this narrative, we see stories within the story, and we could spend hours on a bunch of different things. We see Moses being called and being obedient, God working through him. We see the people of Israel responding and how they responded. We see the Egyptians who needed an adjustment in their thinking, especially Pharaoh. And ultimately, we see God working his plan. We know that the plague served as judgment on the gods of, of Egypt, and the Egyptians worshipped a wide variety of nature gods and attributed to their power the natural phenomenon they saw in the world around them. When Moses approached Pharaoh, demanding that he let the people go, Pharaoh responded by saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. This statement began the challenge to show whose God was more powerful. The last two Sundays, we covered the first nine plagues. And in scripture, they're grouped together in sets of three. Each began with Moses going to Pharaoh and ended with a plague that came unannounced. Each progressively worse. Each challenging the many gods that were worshipped in Egypt. And we saw the hardening of Pharaoh's heart towards God. Today, we're going to spend some time on the tenth plague, as we've heard. And there, there, can be, there is a contrast that can be seen uh, between judgment and deliverance and between belief and unbelief. Moses and the nation of Israel re re displayed remarkable faithfulness to God's instruction. God provided the means of salvation from judgment for Israel through the 10th plague. Pharaoh rejected and ignored God's, God's word, and Pharaoh ignored God's instruction even after all he had seen and heard and suffered the consequences of his choice. So what was God teaching Pharaoh? Even after all the wonders God had performed, God, Pharaoh still believed he ruled over life and death. The tenth and last plague, the deadliest plague, was a standalone plague, the death of the firstborn males. It was the final judgment against all Egyptians. 
all Egyptian deities. The loss of the firstborn of men and animals had far-reaching theological implications within the culture, namely in the importance of the pagan deities, many of whom were represented by animals to protect their devoted followers from, the, from such nationwide tragedies. This plague was also an attack on Pharaoh's own delusion of deity. The Pharaohs believed that they were gods in their own right. As supreme ruler of the people, the Pharaoh was considered a god on earth the intermediary between the gods and the people. And we find an example uh, in chapter 10, verse 28, where Pharaoh declares to Moses, the day you see my face, you will die. If these words sound familiar, it's because they were also spoken by God when Moses goes up the mountain in chapter 33, verse 20, and it says, you can, cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then Moses also sensed this danger when he encountered God in the burning bush. In chapter 3, verse 6, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Pharaoh declared, declaring the same power was an act of sheer ignorance and arrogance. He was claiming the exclusive right that belonged to God alone. The death of Pharaoh's son was especially significant. His son was next in line to sit on the throne. Egyptians believed he was a successor to the gods, not just a boy. But then, God goes one step further. He makes no distinction between Pharaoh's son and every other firstborn in Egypt. Even to the firstborn of a slave girl who was behind the handmill, it says, and all the firstborn of the cattle. The tenth plague was not simply a natural occurrence or the result of some disease. This plague was caused by divine intervention. And right away, chapter 11, verse 1, God said, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Then, in verse 4, it says, About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Moses steps back in the story. God comes forward. So let's narrow it right down. What was God's purpose for this final plague? God's direct information or in, in intervention shows his absolute refusal to share his glory with any other god. God was saying to Pharaoh, I am the one true God, and you are not. So what was God teaching Moses? As we read the passage, we can see Moses express his frustration at Pharaoh's response to him and to God. We know Moses had a lot of excuses about his assignment and interaction with Pharaoh, but Moses continued to be obedient. He continued to believe and obey God's direction despite Pharaoh's hard heart. Over several chapters, the passage tells us Pharaoh hardened his heart and he stubbornly refused to let the people go. This refusal led to misery and death for the Egyptians. I imagine it would be, have been challenging for Moses. God tells him to do what seems like an impossible mission. And then God tells Moses, well, the response won't, you know, that, I'm going to tell you what the response is. And that is Pharaoh will actually say no to you. So go do it. And I, will, and I will make him say no. So I think many of us would, would, you know, why would we go? I think we would say to ourselves, why go then? If you already know the results, God, why all this suffering? Why send me? If God is our, already knows the results, why the drama? And we can find an answer to that in chapter 11, verse 9, where he says, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. 
God did it to show his glory, and the plagues were all part of God's plan of salvation for his people. Even Pharaoh's opposition was part of the plan. God spoke, Pharaoh pushed back. God performed another miracle. God went to great lengths to free his people. Even though Moses' assignment looked impossible, he trusted in the truth of God's sovereignty, and he acted accordingly. But not only, not only un, uh, he not only understood what was required of him, and that ultimately God was in control at a cognitive level, in his mind, he also believed God's word in his heart and made a choice to follow God, to follow God's instruction and to trust him with the results. I found in life that obedience to God requires our time and our patience sometimes. And I'm sure there are some of you here today that have felt God give you an assignment beyond your understanding, beyond your comfort zone, or what you think you're gifted in. He's asking you to step out of your comfort bubble, go, go talk to a stranger, uh, volunteer your time, share your story, change a habit, make amends with someone, confess a sin, even preach. Then you discover it didn't or isn't going the way you had imagined. Well, Proverbs 69 tells us, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God's plan is bigger than mine, and I am called to be obedient and faithful to him and his word. Tim Keller, from his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says this about the sovereignty of God, and I'll quote it, the sovereignty of God is mysterious but not contradictory. It means that we have great incentive to use our wisdom and our will to be to the best, eff, best effect, knowing God holds us to it, and knowing we will suffer consequences from foolishness and wickedness. On the other hand, there is an absolute promise that we cannot ultimately mess up our lives. Even our failures and troubles will be used for God's glory and our benefit. At the most practical level, we have the crucial assurance that even wickedness and tragedy, which we know was not part of God's original design, is nonetheless being woven into a wise plan. So the promise of Romans 8, that all things work for good, is an incomparable comfort to believers. Moses heard God's word, he believed God's word, and he did God's word. So what was God teaching the Israelites? With the 10th plague, God was teaching the Israelites a deep spiritual lesson that today points us to Jesus. Unlike the other plagues which the Israelites survived by virtue of their identity as God's people, this plague required an act of faith on their part. Moses shared God's commands with the Israelites and they followed his instruction by faith, trusting God for the results. Their pleas and prayers were answered, and their faith in God's power was restored as they watched God work through the plagues. But there was action required this time from the Israelites to de demonstrate their belief. God provided a means for Israel's salvation from fi the final judgment on the Egyptians. God instructed them to respond to publicly show their commitment to him by embracing and believing this means of salvation. 
As they prepared for their departure, God gave detailed instructions for the Passover, what animal to select, when to kill it, what to do with its blood, how to cook it, what to do with the leftovers, how to dress for the meal, the reason why it was being celebrated in haste, and what the shed blood signified. God commanded each family to choose an unblemished male lamb, take it to their home, feed it, care for it, and then kill it. The blood of the lamb was to be smeared on the top and sides of the doorways, and the lamb was to be roasted and eaten that night. Israel's salvation from the tenth plague was to be sealed with the blood of the lamb, and any family that did not follow God's instruction would suffer in the last plague. God described how he would send the death angel through the land of Egypt with orders to slay the firstborn male in every household, whether human or animal. The only protection was the blood of the lamb on the door. When the angel saw the blood, he would pass over that house and leave it untouched. This is where the term Passover comes from. Passover is a memorial, a time to remember the night in ancient Egypt when God delivered his people from bondage. The Passover event makes it clear that salvation requires belief and faith in the message of God. This act of judgment caused Pharaoh to finally release the Israelites. In his grief, as his pain intensified, Pharaoh came to realize he was not the powerful deity which his kingdom was built on. Pharaoh found himself human, just like everybody else. By the time the Israelites left Egypt, they had a clear picture of God's power, God's protection, and God's plan for them. The Israelites in all of Egypt could see the futility of worshiping anything but the one true God. For those who were willing to believe, they had convincing evidence that they served the true and living God. Sadly, I would imagine that many still uh, failed to believe, which led to other trials and lessons by God later in their journey. They may have put the blood on the door, but down the road, if we keep reading, you'll, there's more stories of their unbelief. So what do the plagues teach us about God's divine attributes? So in my research, here's what I, what I discovered. Number one, God is almighty. God holds absolute power over everything he has made. God is the creator who made everything out of nothing and brought order out of chaos. The book of Exodus shows us God still rules over his creation. So I'm going to ask you some questions in between these that you can think about. So my first question is, does God hold absolute power in your life? Number two, God is jealous. He will not share his glory with anyone else or anything else. The Egyptians turned away from God to put their confidence in gods of their own invention. The plagues tore them down one by one. So another question, what other gods do you put before the one true God? Number three, God is just. That in righteousness, God deals with us according to our sin. Pharaoh rebelled against God and deliberately tried to destroy God's people. Those who followed God's instruction were set free. Those who ignored God's instruction experienced God's final judgment. So my question would be, when you pass from this life, or Christ returns first, and you find yourself standing before God, on that final judgment day, will the blood of the Lamb cover you? 
These five men that I mentioned before are all in glory. I'm confident. They had amazing legacies. And they are rejoicing with Jesus right now. Number four, God is merciful. He saves the needy when they cry out for deliverance. The exodus was set in motion by the prayers of God's people. So when you are experiencing the good and the bad and the really ugly of life, do you go to God in prayer? Or do you go somewhere else? Number five, God is sovereign. His mercy and his justice are his choice. God chose to place his favor on the Israelites, even though they didn't deserve it. At the same time, he chose to leave Pharaoh in his sin. Do you trust God? So let's fast forward a little bit. We're going to fast forward to our choice, to Jesus' story, the gospel story. Here's where we get the benefit of having the whole story, the Old Testament and the New Testament linked together. One commentary put it this way, the Passover event, particularly the sacrifice of the lamb and the application of its blood, is a powerful Old Testament proclamation of the forthcoming work of Jesus Christ. One cannot really overstate the explicit foreshadowing of the Passover to the work of Jesus as our Passover lamb. Like Israel, we are all saved by the sign and substitute of the blood of the lamb. In a number of places in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament establishes a connection between Exodus Passover lamb and the completed work of God's Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a, a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The prophet John the Baptist recognized Jesus as the Lamb of God in John 1, 29. Hebrews 4.15 tells us Jesus is qualified to be called one without blemish because his life was completely free from sin. He was perfect in every way. The Apostle Peter linked the Lamb without defect in Exodus 12.5 with Christ. He calls Jesus a Lamb without blemish or defect in 1 Peter 1.18 and 19. In Revelations 5.6, John the Apostle sees Jesus as a Lamb looking as if it had been slain. Mark 14, 12 tells us Jesus was crucified during the time that the Passover was observed. As the first Passover marked the Hebrews' release from, the Egyptian, uh, from Egyptian slavery, so the death of Christ marks our release from the slavery of sin, Romans 8, 2. As the Old Testament Passover lamb was an important reality in the time of the Exodus, it was a mere foreshadowing of the better and final Passover lamb through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 teaches us that it is through his sinless life and sacrificial death that Jesus became the only one capable of giving people a way to escape death and a sure hope of eternal life. Hebrews 10, 12 reminds us of this unique once-for-all sufficiency of the work of Jesus. The Israelites were given a choice. Something was required to die that night, the night of the Passover, they had two options, their firstborn son or the blood of a lamb. The fact that was not up for debate was that blood was required. God was teaching his people the concept of substitutionary atonement. The Israelites could not save themselves. They needed a substitute to take their place. The death of the lamb and their declaration made by covering their doorframes with the blood 
of, the, of that lamb was their only protection from God's final judgment. They had a choice, stay in Egypt, face God's judgment, stay with what they're familiar with, or choose to follow God's instruction. Now you may say, of course they would follow God's leading. Look at all the plagues that they witnessed, at the devastation, the destruction that they watched happen. But we must remember, we have, again, we have the whole story. They experience this day by day, hour by hour. And the characters in this narrative had to wake up in the morning and experience each and every event as it took place, or watch every event as it took place. Think about your own life. How often do we live life thinking we are in total control and that we know better than God or that we don't need God? We believe in God, but we do our own thing. Or we become complacent about our relationship with Jesus. And then when we see the brokenness around us, the injustice in our world, or we personally experience pain and suffering, we experience uncertainty, brokenness, and challenges in our lives, do we begin to question God? How quickly do we lean into other beliefs and misguided ideas or theologies? We start to believe we can find the right solution or the right answer to the problems in our life on our own, away from trusting God. Again, here's where we get the benefit of having the whole story, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so I want us to look at some scripture Again, from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These verses are about Jesus, who was to die on the cross for our sins. In the New Testament, let's move to the New Testament, Romans 3, 9, and 23 teaches us that all are sinners, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. And verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus died in our place when he was crucified on the cross for our sake. He, God, made Jesus, him, him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We deserve to be the ones placed on the cross because we are the ones who live sinful lives. God substituted himself for us and took what we rightly deserved. In 1 Peter 2:24, he himself bore our sin and in his body on the tree in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter 3:18, for Christ also suffered once, suffered once for sin, the righteousness for the unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. These verses show us that Jesus was a substitute for us, as well as the atonement or payment for our sins, for the sins of us all. We can only pay the price of our sins on our own by being punished and placed in hell. 
for eternity. But God's Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth to pay the price for our sins. Because he did this for us, we now have the opportunity to not only have our sins forgiven, but to spend eternity with him. In order to do this, we must place our faith in what Christ did on the cross. We cannot save ourselves. We need a substitute to take our place. The death of Jesus Christ is the substitutionary atonement, the blood on the doorframe. Like the Israelites, we have a choice. If, you, uh, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to accept him as your Savior and live your life according to his word. And if you're he- here, here today and you say you're a follower of Jesus, I pray you are living your life trusting him in all situations, good, bad, and ugly. I heard a great statement made by a pastor, again, at one of the Celebration of Life services, And it said, lots of people say they love God. But the action that speaks the loudest to the word love is the word trust. And I know many of you would say you love God. What I would ask you, what I would ask you today is, do you trust God? What would you say? Today we have a choice. The Israelites trusted God for their freedom, for their salvation from judgment and slavery. Today we have a choice. What about you? Do you trust God or are you holding tight to your own plans and your own ways? I would encourage you to let go today and give your heart to Jesus, the one who died for you. Jesus waits for you to choose. He left Pharaoh in his sin He'll leave you there too. But he's waiting for you. Hebrews 7.25 reminds us, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him. So I have one more point. Exodus 12.26, it says, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? I just want to zero in on this for a minute. In the text, we see a memorial service being set up. The details of how the Passover day was to be observed in future years were laid out. In chapter 12, 14 to 20, and verses 21 to 27, it was repeated. Interestingly, before the event that it commemorates even occurred, it's like planning, pre-planning a funeral, which is a good idea, by the way. Um... It describes how they were to keep this day of remembrance for the ages. For the first generation, the meaning and purpose of the Passover was really clear. They witnessed it. But what would their children and children's children remember? So I have some questions for you. Do you remember when you gave your life to Christ? Did you share your experience that experience with others? Do you still share that experience with other people? Do you share your faith story with your children and grandchildren, if you have them, or your friends, or your family, or your co-workers? Do they understand why you come to church to celebrate and worship God?
Do they understand why you believe in Jesus and what you believe about him? We can recognize the tendency of man is to forget across the generations. Memories are not genetic, by the way. And how quickly can things be forgotten? And if you jump back to Exodus number 1, chapter 1, verse 8, which we see Joseph. A new king, a new pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph, it says. Joseph saved Egypt from famine. They wouldn't be there without Joseph, who was an Israelite. And he was the second man only to the previous king. Even he was forgotten. Because of our continual danger of forgetting, we are told repeatedly in the Bible to of the need to teach others what we know and to keep learning ourselves. The Great Commission included the command to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. In Matthew 28, 20, the first Passover was to be held in remembrance as an annual feast. So it is today, as Christians, we are to remember Jesus' death through communion until he returns. And during the Last Supper, a Passover celebration... Jesus took a loaf of bread and gave thanks to God. As he broke it and gave it to his disciples, he said, This is my body given to you. This is in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Luke 22, 19-21. The new covenant replaced the old covenant. When Christ, the Passover lamb, was sacrificed. Today, the Lord's Supper, or communion, as is, is a remembrance of what Christ did for us and a celebration of what we receive as a result of his sacrifice. So I want to ask the worship team to come up, come back up. I want the prayer team to get in their places. Communion servers, you can come up as well, please. And I'm going to pray to close the, the, the message and also to pray for communion as all this motion happens. So let's pray together. Father God, by your grace, we receive forgiveness of our sins and salvation through the sacrifice of your only son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. Today we honor this sacrifice, this free gift, and may we reflect on our relationship with you and, and our attitudes towards you. May we reflect on our relationship with others and ask ourselves, do we need to extend forgiveness as you have forgiven us, as you have covered us with the blood of the Passover lamb? Today, God, we have a choice. Will we trust you and follow you as did Moses and the Israelites, or will we harden our hearts towards you like Pharaoh? God, if there are those here today who, are, who you are calling to yourself, to saving faith in you, may they respond to you today. If there are those who have hardened their hearts towards you, make them soft. May we all be found faithful today and in days to come. Today we thank you for the elements we are about to partake 
the bread representing the body of Christ broken on the cross and the cup which represents your blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We give you thanks, we give you glory, we love you and we trust you. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.